Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from uh, Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing menorrhagia and menstrual disorders. As ever, all the information is, is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello once again, uh, it's Jamie, one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Um, and it's Anna, one of the teaching fellows in obstetrics and gynaecology. So in this episode we're going to be uh, talking about menorrhagia and uh, menstrual disorders in general. Yeah. Uh, and so like with all these podcasts we're going, we start with the def- uh, definition, Anna. Um, what is menorrhagia? Um, so menorrhagia um, is, just, I should just add in now, a lot of people are referring to it now as heavy menstrual bleeding or HMB. Not so, another definition of it's, right. it's the same thing. It's just one of those things, isn't it? See, um, I'm old enough to remember honk before it became HHS, so... Oh, I don't even know what HSS is. H what? H... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anywho. Anywho, moving on. Uh, so, menorrhagia slash heavy menstrual bleeding. Yeah, so same thing, just different terminology. Um, so, by NICE guidelines, they define um, menorrhagia or um, heavy menstrual bleeding, so that's another term that is used, um, as excessive menstrual blood loss over several consecutive cycles which interferes with a woman's physical, emotional, social and material quality of life, Mm -hmm. is the actual definition. Um, If you look at the amount of blood loss in a menstrual cycle that is enough to make a woman anemic, it's probably about 80 mils, but obviously that's very difficult to actually quantify. Mm. Um, So you could say that if a woman is becoming anemic, then they probably have got significant menorrhagia. Um, But actually, even in a woman who is not becoming anemic, if that blood loss is excessive for her, then Mm. that's more important than the actual volume. Okay. So um, if we're suspecting uh, menorrhagia or heavy menstrual bleeding, um, what are the important bits that we want to get from the history? So we'll often ask a woman about um, a bit to try and, I suppose, make the amount of blood loss a bit more objective. So asking her about how many towels she has, towels or tampons she has to use, whether or not she floods through those onto her clothes. If she has um, blood clots, that's suggestive of a higher menstrual blood flow. Um, but as a kind of draw attention to previously with the definition and all of those things doesn't really matter so in the sense that if she tells you that it's heavy even if you can't find objective evidence it's still she's still got a complaint of menorrhagia by the definition um would we might be able to find some objective evidence though so we might be able to find clinical signs of anemia for example and that might add strength um, to the diagnosis um, the other things important to ask about is things like postcoital bleeding, so bleeding after sex, um, or intermenstrual bleeding, which is bleeding in between the schedule times that someone would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk a bit about later the potential causes of those, yeah. but if you also identify that on a background of menorrhagia, then it might kind of make you think of some mm-hmm. other potential diagnosis rather than if mm-hmm. um, it was just regular bleeding yeah. but heavy. I think we need to be very right in using menorrhagia properly, as, as uh, you know, not just not all PB bleeding is menorrhagia. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, and that's how the, the definition is also is over consecutive cycles, so it's not just a one-off thing. Yeah. It's something you know, it's more of a chronic definition, I suppose, in that respect. So, um, what examination should be performed then? 
Um, so we should do a general, exa a general examination looking for signs of anemia, an abdominal examination. Um, it may be there are... Um, kind of comes onto the causes a little bit but um, maybe there's fibroids in the uterus for example and you might be able to palpate those abdominally um, and that would be important to identify um, and then you may want to do a vaginal examination as well um, have a look with speculum make sure the cervix appears healthy if the woman is due a smear at that time you might take the opportunity to do one um, and a bimanual examination which again would help you determine the size of the uterus um, again, if there was fibroids, then that would kind of add strength to that, really. Um, if a woman's presenting for the first time and um, there are no other kind of red flags to suggest that this might be um, a serious problem like a malignancy, so that would be things like if she was older, if she had irregular heavy menstrual bleeding, if she had intermenstrual bleeding as well as menorrhagia, all of those things would kind of make you concerned um, and I'll, I'll mention in a little while there's some additional investigations you might want to do but if someone's a young, younger regular heavy menstrual bleeding no other red flags or symptoms um, you might not need to do any other investigations um, other than a full blood count just to check she's not anemic and you could kind of start just empirical treatment um, but if she is um, have some of those other red flags like the older age or irregular bleeding at the time you're examining her you might want to take a sample from the endometrium um, that's why I've mentioned that at this point so you've got the speculum in and you've visualized the cervix and you take what we call a pipel biopsy mm. um, so the criteria for doing that is woman over the age of 45 who's got irregular heavy menstrual bleeding you definitely need to check that she doesn't have endometrial cancer mm. and you so you take your sample at that stage um, so mentioned age is a, is a sort of a red flag to think about. Are there any other risk factors that we should be aware of when we're taking a history? Um, yeah, so things like family history, um, so particularly of obviously gynaecological cancers, um, but also of a family history of bowel cancer, because that can be linked to cancer syndromes, which are also linked to endometrial cancer, so sure. Lynch syndrome or um, hereditary non-polyposis coli, that springs to mind. Um, and somebody who has other things such as they're overweight, uh, they're diabetic. Um, and the other thing we should ask for um, is whether or not they have a history of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, because these women, um, if they've had very irregular cycles, they've had lots of time where they've had unopposed oestrogen, therefore that increases their risk of developing endometrial cancer, potentially at a younger age. So it's important to ask about that. Okay. Are there any other, any other um, investigations that we need to do? Um, so, as I already said, if there was no other, nothing else in the history, just a um, simple kind of attendance for the first time at the GP practice, other than a full blood count, nothing else. But if you found the risk factors, papel biopsy, if you felt that the uterus could be enlarged and maybe there could be fibroids or you were concerned about some um, issues especially if you'd maybe already given treatment and the patient wasn't any better, you might want to arrange an ultrasound scan to look at the uterus and look at the ovaries. Um, you might do some more specific blood tests if the patient has other symptoms. So thinking about hypothyroidism mm. can result in menorrhagia. So if they have other symptoms suggestive of that, you, you'd probably check for it. Um, and 
looking for coagulation disorders, so things like von Willebrand's disease you might do if the patient gives you a significant bleeding history um, or if she has had menorrhagia since menarche, for example, then you, you check for von Willebrand's and uh, potentially other coagulopathies. Okay. Now, I'm a big fan of abbreviations and acronyms. Uh, so at this point, um, as you know, we've uh, talked about the four T's. Um, at this time, it's time to bring in Palm Cohen. Yeah, which you probably have to spell because... Yes. Uh, it's so uh, <laughs> P-A-L-M hyphen C-O-E-I-N. Yeah. As, as a way of remembering the causes of uh, menstrual disorders. Yeah, so it's a way... I will yeah. put this on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, basically a, a, a way of remembering the different causes of abnormal uterine bleeding, which encompasses both heavy menstrual bleeding and instrumental bleeding. The palm uh, is about the structural causes and the Cohen, we think we is how it's Not pronounced, um, is the non-structural causes. So just important to remember that it's not just the um, it's not just heavy menstrual bleeding. It's also um, irregular menstrual bleeding as well. Um, so palm is um, polyps, which could be cervical or endometrial polyps, adenomyosis, which is endometriosis but the deposits of endometriosis are within the myometrium of the uterus lyomyoma which is a fancy word for fibroids um, and the m is malignancy or hyperplasia so as in kind of precancerous um, hyperplasia within the endometrium and then for our non-structural causes c is coagulopathy which we've already touched on a bit O is ovulatory dysfunction, which is more related to intermenstrual bleeding, perhaps, than heavy menstrual bleeding. E is endometrial, which is um, the old term for what we used to call dysfunctional uterine bleeding. So there's probably something in the endometrium, just basically that person doesn't have anything else structural, um, but they have um, heavy menstrual bleeding. Iatrogenic, again, more related probably to intermenstrual bleeding, um, and that's so things like contraceptive um, pills quite commonly give you intermenstrual bleeding. And N, not yet classified. Um, <laughs> I don't know how useful that is really. So it's probably not. Get out of jail that last <laughs> it's, it's probably not the most useful abbreviation in the world, um, but something maybe to jog your memory to try and think about it when you're going through your history and your examination so that you don't miss any of those kind of potential causes. Because mm. obviously your management options are going to vary slightly mm. um, if you find something particular that needs to be treated. Okay. So um, if we've identified our problem where doctors want to do something about it what uh, what management options are there um, so in general terms um, this is presuming that we haven't uh, uncovered you know a specific structural problem that mm. needs to be um, sorted out like a polyp that needs to be removed yeah. or something um, we have non-hormonal hormonal and surgical treatments for menorrhagia so non-hormonal would be probably first line, and that would include tranexamic acid, methanamic acid. Essentially medications women take just during the days of their period, which help reduce the amount of mm. menstrual blood flow. That would be completely appropriate as a first line in, kind of in most women, or if someone specifically said, for example, they were trying to conceive a child at that time and they couldn't have, therefore, any hormonal medication because all of the hormonal things are contraceptive. Yeah. Um, 
so that's one thing. Um, the next step will be our hormonal treatments. Um, so all of the contraceptive pills, um, either the combined pills, progesterone only, implant, depot injection, um, would all control symptoms of heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and then the Mirena coil. So the Mirena coil, an interuterine system which is actually licensed for heavy menstrual bleeding, is also contraceptive as well. Mm. Um, probably actually a lot of a lot of women will go for that the Mirena coil yeah. ahead of anything else yeah. because actually it's quite effective. Yeah. It's contraceptive. Um, and once it's in it can stay in then um, for five years. So you don't have to kind of worry about it. It's just kind of there. Um, there would be cer- certain situations where that wouldn't be um, suitable. Um, and the main one that comes to mind is if someone's got f- a significant fibroids, mm. um, distorting the shape of the uterus, or if the uterine cavity is very large, then a Mirena coil might not be very effective, might not actually stay in the right place because of the size of the shape of the uterus. It might just become expelled. Um, so it's something to think about when we're counselling about the different options. Sure. Um, and then the surgical options that are available. Um, all of the surgical options, apart from one, um, we wouldn't recommend somebody would have any more children. So they, we have to be certain before we start offering surgical options that someone has completed their family. Mm. Um, and in some circumstances, making sure they've got adequate alternative contraception as well, because they're not all contraceptive, but we wouldn't recommend um, pregnancy. Sure. So um, an endometrial ablation, lots of different techniques of doing that, but essentially you're burning away the, um, the endometrium all the way back to the basal layer so it doesn't regrow. Um, it makes sense you wouldn't really recommend someone to have a pregnancy after you've burnt their endometrium away, but it's not contraceptive. Okay. It's possible to fall pregnant following an endometrial ablation, but so not recommended. It doesn't grow back then? No. But you could... The, the still be embedding it, somewhere yeah. else and yeah. you could theoretically end up with therefore a pregnancy abnormally embedded within yeah. the myometrium or um, and that could lead to problems with growth restriction um, issue problems yeah. with the placenta you wouldn't want so we have to make sure that they know that they can fall pregnant as in it's possible but mm. they should have alternative contraception um, other surgical options, um, if they have got fibroids, very large fibroids in the uterus, and they want to retain their fertility, so this is the one option where you can get pregnant up afterwards, is that we do a myomectomy. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a, an, an abdominal procedure, can be done laparoscopically in some centres, where you just remove the fibroids themselves from the uterus and then stitch the uterus back together again. It's possible to fall pregnant following that. Um, but really reserved for women who still want to retain their fertility. You wouldn't really do it if someone had completed their family because you might as well, if you're going to do an abdominal operation, just do a hysterectomy at that stage. Mm. It would be associated with less blood loss, um, shorter operating time. So so hysterectomy is a management option. Last kind of step, really. Mm. if you've potentially tried everything else, nothing else has definitely worked. Definitely can't get pregnant after that. And that is definitely, that is contraceptive. <laughs> I know, I remember enough of the guys to know that. <laughs> there are case reports of pregnancies happening after hysterectomy. Oh, wow. Um, as in... Like topping pregnancies. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> um, as in, there are still eggs being produced if you leave the ovaries in. Mm. And so potentially sperm could get through the vault of the vagina, but very rare. Very rare. Case report stuff. 
Um, there are, if somebody has got fibroids, there's um, um, a couple of other management options just to talk about. One of them surgical, that you can cut off the blood supply to those fibroids by doing uterine artery embolisation. Um, that, again, you wouldn't recommend a pregnancy after that, probably, but it has probably happened. Pregnancies have happened yeah. following that. Um and the other one is medical treatment for fibroids. So mm. we can either give GnRH analogues, so gadadotrophin releasing hormone analogues, which essentially um, are a chemical menopause. Fibroids are sensitive to the um, estrogen hormones. Yeah. So if you induce a menopause, then the fibroids should shrink. Um, but that's not potentially a long-term solution, especially sure. if the woman's young. And then there are other medications as well, which kind of induce a similar type of um, menopausal state. Um, so just to be aware of that they exist, really. There's specific for fibroids. Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned some case reports of ectopic pregnancy if the ovaries are left. So are the ovaries normally left then uh, if a patient has a hysterectomy for um, menstrual disorders? Uh, yeah, it de- so it depends on the clinical situation, the woman's age. In general, if a woman is less than the age of less than the age of forty-five and she's having it purely because of heavy menstrual bleeding, no other reason, you would leave the ovaries in situ because there's still going to be um, a number of years there where they're functional um, and preventing against problems of the menopause, specifically osteoporosis. If you took them out, that woman would then need to take hormone replacement therapy yeah. to prevent those complications. If a woman's over the age of 45, um, or if they have a significant family history of ovarian cancer, for example, then there may be grounds to take the ovaries out at that time, um, but in discussion with the woman. Okay. Um, so earlier on, we mentioned inter- intermenstrual bleeding and postcoital bleeding and said we'd come back to them. We're now back at them. <laughs> um, so if patients are coming in with intermenstrual bleeding, so bleeding between the menstrual cycles, what sort of causes go through your mind when you, when you hear that? So it could be that there's a structural cause, so it's something like a cervical polyp or an endometrial polyp, so something that's more prone to bleeding even when there's no um, kind of hormonal yeah. control over the cycle. Um, so examination is important to check for that, an ultrasound scan to look for um, endometrial polyps. Um, it may be that there is some kind of an iatrogenic cause, it's of, often the case, so someone's taking contraceptive medication and actually it's quite common that you get intermenstrual bleeding yeah. when you take different contraceptive medication. So that may be that you could manage that by t- either st- stop it changing to a different type of contraceptive um, the different doses of oestrogens and progesterones make a difference to how likely a woman is to have intermenstrual bleeding. Um, And sometimes we don't ever really get to the bottom of it. So you want to kind of investigate and make sure there is nothing kind of serious going on. It may be, especially if it's combined with the heavy menstrual bleeding, you might want to take an endometrial biopsy, check there's no evidence of cancer, arrange a scan, make sure there's nothing, you know, abnormal there. But actually, it may be that we'd never find exactly what's causing yeah. that irregular bleeding. Um, and then postcoital bleeding, the main thing you need to rule out there is cervical cancer. Um, it may be that it's more benign than that, but essentially problems with the cervix can cause uh, postcoital bleeding, so we must make sure that there's no abnormality such as cervical cancer. Okay. 
Um, and obviously, if you examine um, somebody um, with postcoital bleeding and you think the cervix is abnormal, the key thing in that case is to make sure that they're referred to a colposcopy service for biopsies and further investigations. Um, don't do a smear. A smear is a screening test um, and won't give you your diagnosis. Um, so if the cervix is abnormal, then just refer uh, to colposcopy then. Mm. So you have screenings for asymptomatic patients, that's an important definition. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it seems very hard to being a woman. I'm very glad I'm a bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> that was the Take Orally Menorrhagia podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.